0: Welcome to the Side Talks Podcast. My name is Corey Kraft. I'm a programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival, and I'm your co-host for this podcast covering all things cinema.
1: And I'm Rachel Morgan. I'm the creative director for the Sidewalk Film Festival and cinema. Yeah.
0: So, Rachel, what have you been watching this week?
1: So, you know, this is a really difficult time of year. hmm uh, because we're screening for sidewalk film festival God. so yes we are yeah so i'm you know i can't talk about a lot of the stuff that i've been watching so i'm going to kind of kick it back a little bit and say here's something that i watched not that long ago and connected to something that i did actually watch that's not a film recently and something i have thought about though this week is that fair mm-hmm. and that is a film called greta uh,
0: yeah i haven't seen this yet i'm excited to
1: Yeah. Okay. So I saw it in the theaters. It kind of came and went really fast, which is maybe why you didn't get to see it because my feeling was it'll be around for a couple of weeks. It's that kind of film. It certainly had the marketing budget behind it. And then it just went away. Yeah. It's really good. It's a, can you throw the name at, uh, at Chloe?
0: Chloe Grace Moretz.
1: Yes. Chloe Grace Moretz. Um, I just, I have some sort of weird with, with her last name, I have some sort of weird insecure (laughs) feeling when I get to her last name and I just feel like I can't say it. And it's not her. It's me. But yeah, that happens. So anyway, (laughs) Chloe Grace, wonderful in this film. It's really sort of turned up and strange. And the idea being that the sort of older woman, much older woman, I'm just going to say if this way gets a crush on um, a very young Chloe Grace and uh, pursues her. And I think that that ha- happens pretty quick. You kind of can see that first of all in the trailer, but it also happens pretty quick in the film. Mm-hmm. So it becomes this sort of thriller caper, and it's n- it's just non-apologetically um, campy and strange and fun.
0: So the, the older woman's played by Isabel Hubert, yep. um, who is great in pretty much everything.
1: Just good in this. She's really good in this, and yeah. she, it's you know again, it's turned. <laughs> so I mean, I really appreciated this film. I Oh, well, it... it's turned. Yeah, it's turned. Uh, And so I appreciated it. It should be should have been in theaters longer. You can watch it now, I think, on Amazon or any other streaming service. Let's not plug Amazon. Know why I said that even. Oh, my gosh. I know why, because I'm programmed to say that just like many other corporate brands that surround my (laughs) eyes every day. And so then, you know, sort of similarly, I've been watching a bunch of uh, Billie Eilish music videos similar, I think, to Chloe with a similar spirit. I'll put it that way. And they're really good. And so that made me sort of this, maybe this is not exactly a connection, but it's working as a connection for me. And that is that like young women, very young women doing very interesting things. And so Chloe Grace being one of those, I I understand she didn't write or direct, but she's making some interesting decisions about the work that she pursues. Billie Eilish, um, similarly sort of a master of her domain and making some interesting stuff. I'm seeing uh, some disagreement here from you or what are you thinking? I
0: I can't get fully on board the Billie Eilish training. Oh my gosh. You tried. need
1: to get on the Billie Eilish. I've tried. Um, you know, sort of uh, mastering all that she does there, and the music videos are really interesting and good, and I think um, edgy in the same way that film Greta is, and mm-hmm. also um, sort of you know taking some safe chances. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, sure. And you know, in the sort of uh, vein of Grimes too, who makes also makes really interesting music videos, and also sort of you know her and her her computer have made herself a lot of money, <laughs> and I think fairly. Sure. So, you know, that's what I've been watching, Greta and a bunch of Billie Eilish music videos.
0: Well, I uh, caught up with a towering classic in sort of suspense horror that I had never seen before. I'm embarrassed to say I'd never seen it before, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, There are only so many hours in the day. Hey, it happens. I finally saw the 1965 Roman Polanski film Repulsion. Okay. And I was pretty taken with it. I mean, it's kind of hard not to be because it's that, you know, it's exactly my kind of movie.
1: The ever-charming Roman Polanski. Uh, yeah, what's he been In up to? In such favor.
0: Such a good director humans. and uh, haven't heard from him lately.
1: I wonder why. I
0: don't know. We, we'll have to look into it later.
1: Let's not um, allow him to speak. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to be best friends with him. Uh, he seems, it's safe or not to. He seems like a pretty... Um, uncool dude for various reasons. But Repulsion, this movie he made when he was a young man, turned out to be pretty rad. It stars Catherine Deneuve as a Belgian young woman living in sort of mod-era London who is subject, because she looks like a 1965 Catherine Deneuve, from all (laughs) sorts of unwanted attention from men who are trying to pick her up and who are saying terrible things to her. And this Ripped from the headlines. This yeah. is like
1: taken from real life. Uh, I
0: mean, I mean, how, how bitterly ironic that this was directed by Roman Polanski. Right. So she is struggling with all of this attention from men. She doesn't want it. She retreats into her apartment and suffers a mental breakdown that eventually manifests in uh, murder. And uh, increased paranoia. Does. Yeah, you know, as it does watching this i I understand now why everyone has always been less impressed with Darren Aronofsky than I have been because finally everything Darren Aronofsky does he got from this movie mm-hmm. pretty yeah. much yep Deneuve's performance is excellent and uh Polanski's again kind of low budget I would assume little touches of surrealism you know sudden cracks appearing in the walls and um hands reaching out from the the hallway walls i mean these are all really like terrifyingly realized it's a really claustrophobic unsettling movie that i enjoyed a great deal and again too bad about you know the guy who made it but what are you gonna do
1: almost as good as a billy eilish video
0: i'll take your word for it i i've just listened to the record i've not seen any of the videos Get ready for a five-minute fight.
1: Five-minute. Round one. Fight. Corey, guess what it's time for? It's
0: time for a five-minute fight, and I'm fired up.
1: Five-minute fight! You see how long I made that go?
0: Yeah, it was several minutes.
1: So it's John Hughes. It's John Hughes. Let's start the clocks.
0: (sighs) Okay. Um, John Hughes is a filmmaker very well-respected from the 1980s. Many of his films I have as you've mocked me for not seeing yeah the films of his i have seen though they suck
2: no They're not good no, no, no.
0: i understand that he is presenting the voice of a generation uh but if if that generation claims his films as its voice that generation uh well they they have all kinds of screwed up values um i guess it is kind of a great reflection of reaganism from the sort of vapid uh, materialism of Ferris Bueller's Day Off to the sort of uh, surface-level transformations that that are offered in The Breakfast Club. Um, I think that these are terrible messages to broadcast to teenagers um, told in these sort of flashy but ultimately kind of vapid packages. Convince me otherwise, what am I missing?
1: Okay. So, first of all, you just single handedly tried to take my generation down.
0: Well, I mean, being I mean, a
1: Gen Xer. Yeah. So I I don't know. Look at John
0: Hughes. uh, There's the evidence. You need to to be taken down.
1: I don't know that his films would necessarily that I would say that they reflect the values of a generation. I do think that though that they represent some of the stereotypes of a generation and sort of play with them and make fun of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really enjoyable. And I will say for people my age and even some people who inherited this nostalgia, super duper sort of you know, a flashback for us, very enjoyable, very nostalgic, um, sort of a time capsule that we can re-experience over and over again, and it sort of builds on the meaning of the films. I mean, you're looking, look at something like, I'll take my my absolute favorite, and again, it's, we have to be careful here, and myself included, about what he's written and what he's directed, because yeah. clearly much more of a writer than a director. I'll also say, As he sort of went through life, I think um, not a super popular guy after um, several films. And I don't think he took fame. I don't think fame was a good thing for him. Right. Um, And that's quite unfortunate. But Pretty in Pink is a masterpiece. I could watch that film endlessly. And I don't say that about a lot of films. I mean, literally, I could watch that film every three months and really, really enjoy it. If you go look at that thing and you look at the characters that he crafted and you look at an actor like James Spader playing a man who's like, and I, I underline the word "man," who's supposedly in high school, who's like walking around with that haircut and some like penny loafers, um, and a you know blazer, and not going to class, but just you know basically reading everybody the riot act whenever he feels like it i mean that's the kind of thing that's just so interesting and so unique and so strange and is it rooted in reality no but i don't think that you know when looking at something like ferris bueller when you're you know when you're breaking the wall and having a character talk to the camera i don't think that the point was ever to be realistic but to present style and fun and humor but isn't it smug um i think that in retrospect it's smug. I'm not so sure that it was smug at the time. I'm I, really not.
0: I just, I, you know, if I want to look at the youth of America in the 1980s, yeah. I have Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Great film. I have Say Anything. Good film. E- even if I want my James Spader fix, I have Tough Turf. Great film. So, why does John Hughes sort of overwritten florid dialogue and uh, these kind of again uh, retrograde, if not outright damaging, social messages. Why should I give a damn? Why I mean, I this, this is
1: this is coming from somebody who props up somebody like Clint Eastwood. I mean, what do you mean damaging social messages? I mean, that's that's a lot of films from the '80s. So I mean, why we're holding John Hughes accountable for that? I don't know.
0: Fair, but he. I mean he has perhaps through no fault of his own been exalted as this voice of a generation
1: i mean i think there's a way to read something like 16 candles as a girl who has a crush and kind of gets her way kind of gets what she wants and it's through a gentleman young man discovering that maybe life is, is about more than just the super attractive um woman he's dating not that molly ringwald isn't super attractive and clearly john hughes thought so i mean he literally penned I keep saying literally and I'm so sorry that's not of my generation but another he penned that film for Molly Ringwald um, I, you know I think that you. I think that when you're looking at this stuff it's It. I can understand how it's hard to hold it up in 2019 and sa- and, and not consider the fact of when it was made and certainly there are all kinds of issues um, with the way that The Breakfast Club ends and Ali Sheedy would would, would would say that
0: But that's my she, biggest problem with that movie
1: yeah yeah but I think she would also say that you know that is that is unfortunately, that was a different time. Ugh, so much more I could say about the life and work of John Hughes. I,
2: I agree with Corey that it all seems like vapid materialism and all the characters have sort of odd motivations and directions and it definitely seems like a weird message to send out to teenagers, but I mean, Rachel had a good point saying that's also kind of what Clint Eastwood is doing. He portrays himself as a racist, but these teenagers are sort of portraying these almost unhealthy stereotypes of what life was like back then, like in high school or early college or 16 years old. And Rachel says they don't reflect a generation, they just play on the stereotypes, which is very true. I I definitely agree with that they're a time capsule. But then again, the whole reason Rachel likes it is because they reflect her generation. You grew up with them. Um, It seems more of like a personal thing to you, not almost like a a filmmaking John Hughes type love. And Corey wins a thousand points for saying they're smug. All the, the movies themselves are smug, the characters are overly smug, and they're all way too cool. No one was cool back then, no one had that much confidence. Ferris Bueller is a sociopath. Okay, Rachel might have been that cool back then. But yeah, so Corey literally wins this one.
1: <laughs> What's the shit?
0: Here it is. Every time you just can't help so high.
1: I know, I know. Isn't it crazy? I'm waiting for somebody to discover me. <laughs> um, okay, it's just like Mariah Carey. It's hard to tell the difference. That's true. So uh, I'm in. I'm on the treadmill. There's a film in front of me, and what do I see? But the lovely, beautiful Charlize Theron. Okay. Did you like the way I did her last I, name?
0: I did, yeah. She would appreciate it, too. I'm I
1: think sure. so. I think so. And then, what in the world is going on? It's another world. I haven't... This is a Charlize Theron film I have not seen, which I mm-hmm. like her a lot. And then, guess what I see? Frances McDormand. She's up on, like, a thing. She's yeah. all whited out. I'm like, wait, there's a film where these two women are in the same room? I know that is a powerhouse. Is. Do you I know figured you is? did. You know what? I felt like I should know this you because should. those two women are in this, but I don't know it. Eon Flux. Okay. Eon Flux, right.
0: directed by Karen Kusama.
1: Damn. I should know this. You
0: should. Um, not because it's a particularly good movie, but because of the big swing you know, that it made. Sure. In terms of having a female director, in terms of being this adaptation of this cult cartoon right. from MTV, from early MTV. I Feminist lanes. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, in the style of a lot of mid-2000s science fiction I remember it being visually interesting, but almost completely incomprehensible on a narrative.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: basic basis. Yeah.
1: Well, it was cool to see those two women in the same room. I knew when I brought this to you, it would take me like one sentence out and you yeah. would guess it. But hey, you know what? I'm keeping it real.
0: So Charlize Theron and Frances McDormand uh, starred together in, a, in another movie in 2005. What? Yeah, called North Country. They both got oh. Oscar nominations for it.
1: Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one. I wonder why.
0: Yeah. Well, it's not very memorable. It's a Or movie. good. I, no, I really like it. It's got some really good <laughs> performances from not only those two, but from um, uh, pre- Super fame Jeremy Renner and Richard Jenkins as Charlie's Theron's dad. Really good performances, uh, and not really anything like that in Eon Flux, unfortunately. Karen Kusama, of course, has rebounded somewhat since then.
1: Good. Yeah. All right, let's go.
0: All right, Rachel, it's time for a filmmaker lightning round. Love this it. is where I uh, offer up a filmmaker for you, and we go over in in rapid-fire session some opinions about their filmography. Today, we are going to uh, discuss the films of the Danish provocateur Lars von Trier. You have filmmaker. to say his name like this. Lars von Trier! Just <laughs> like a metal, like, screamo thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I just Uh, did. Well, thank you for for doing that for both of us. Von Trier is the sort of filmmaker about whom it is impossible to uh, not have an opinion if you've seen even like a handful of his movies. I
1: would love to meet the person who's like, yeah, I don't I don't really have an opinion of Lars Von Trier.
0: Yeah, I like, whatever. I mean, (laughs) I I could take or leave all of the scenes of graphic sexual violence in his movies. Like, no, nobody's going to come away from his film saying that Uh, there is something going on in like all of them.
1: Can be Uh, difficult to eat mozzarella stuff. To a Lars von Trier film. I can
0: only imagine. Yeah, so let's I've get tried into it. it. What is a Lars von Trier movie that you absolutely love?
1: Oh, man. I, I actually, more than one, but I'm going to say it Nymphomaniac Part One oh, and my Two. God.
0: Okay, let's get into it because you know we've had this conversation. Yep. One of his that I don't really care for.
1: Yeah. And I am going to say something really gross. Okay. Uh, Not as gross as those films, but gross. I actually decided to get into that and start watching that at about 10 o'clock on uh, Saturday night.
0: You know, as you do.
1: Right. And I watched both of them and, you know, then I got to go to sleep about 4 a.m. I just, one after the other, watched those two very late at night. And I think that that proves that I'm a fucking superhero.
0: Uh, it it proves something. I watched them a week apart, and in between there, like, took a seven day long shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The like movie, the shower
1: in *Nymphomaniac*.
0: God. Um, and
1: *Antichrist*.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a that's a shower of a different sort. Ooh,
1: did not need to see Willem Dafoe like that ever.
0: And yet, um, the movie of his I really love is *Melancholia*.
1: Okay, yeah, um, that is a dark, dark film, as they all are. But man, that one, that one really got me.
0: Yeah, it it is um, hard to shake that yeah. movie. But I, I think it is at this point maybe my favorite of his movies, simply because of the sheer beauty of the images, oh, which I run mean, kind had, of in yeah. counterpoint to what that movie is doing, which is a slow descent into complete nihilism.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, there are sequences in that film. That I, I land on and I'm like, and you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert in film production. I do have an undergraduate degree in it, but, you know, it's it's got some age on it. And, you know, I, I do a little production now, but I mean, the, so it's not like this is a you know crazy that I don't know this. But I look at those sequences and I'm like, I don't know where to begin to parse out how the hell he shot that. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's really magical and strange and wonderful and also just horrific at the same time.
0: Yeah. It it is all of those things yeah. uh, hard to look away from. All right, a movie of his that you feel is underrated or undervalued.
1: Dance in the Dark. I think a lot of people really hate that film. Yeah, I, agree I with totally you. get it. I totally get it, but it's actually really brilliant.
0: I, I love it. Yeah, I agree, and that would be my answer as well. Bjork in that movie is a force of nature. Um, Agreed. There's there's just nothing quite like that movie. But
1: it is a little bit like watching somebody kick a puppy. Yeah. And I think that that can be part of why that one's hard to take, but man, it's a good film.
0: Yeah. Uh, a movie of his that maybe you don't like as much as others. Uh,
1: you know what? I think I'm holding it down for Von Trier. I think that rarely do I meet somebody who likes a Von Trier film more than me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, it's very unusual. And g- generally i I run into quite the opposite. Yeah. Now what I will say is that I don't ever, ever, ever want to watch dogville again. Like, I just I think that I saw it once and um, I went through all the things that you have to go through with that film uh, and woke up on the went to sleep afterwards and woke up on the other side of it was actually watched it with somebody who totally checked out and was like, I'm out of here. And I just kept I hung in there. And I just I do think, though, that like, what a hard film to get through. And I don't know that I want to ever have that experience again. And so maybe that's one that I would say, well.
0: yeah, and that's even got your, your lady in it. Uh, in, in
1: yes, my wife Nicole Kidman is in that as well.
0: Doing the most in that movie. Doing
1: a lot in yeah. that movie, as she does. Yeah,
0: as she does. That was probably my first Von Trier, if you can believe that. I believe that. that I is, mean, That is the one that I bought into when I was still in high school, saw that movie, and immediately was like, I don't know who this crazy son of a bitch is, but I got to check down the rest of his stuff.
1: Yeah, well, I learned to swim by being dropped in the deep end,
0: you know? And <laughs> I
1: mean, and hey, I knew, I, I learned. And so I think you had that same experience yeah. when you watched That's Your First Fondra. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. The movie of his that I might not like is, as much as other people, as I've mentioned, is Nymphomaniac, both parts of Nymphomaniac. I can't really hang with the video essay style that he sort of... Cotton's onto in that movie, though I think it's used it to slightly better effect in his most recent film, The House That Jack Built, which you haven't seen yet. I haven't
1: seen yet. And I will say that I don't, you know, I think that not liking Nymphomaniac is fair. Those films are built to be hated. Right.
0: The House That Jack Built certainly is. But as we were discussing with uh, with Sam earlier, The House That Jack Built is almost autobiography. I mean, it's obviously strictly metaphorical von trier is not to my knowledge an active serial killer Um, that we know but that movie does go into some strange very very revelatory sort of painful places for him as an artist that i that i think is is fascinating uh and then the final question a movie of his that you feel the need to rewatch, which is for von (laughs) trier maybe not too many of them
1: yeah i think the answer to that is i don't know that i can do it yeah and so I'll just go with, I haven't seen The House of Jack Built. Looking forward to seeing it. I also think we probably should have started a segment with a thing that's like, disclaimer, kind of like at the end of those pharmaceutical commercials. Disclaimer, if you experience depression, please do not be inspired to watch a Von Trier film.
0: Yes, <laughs> I guess we should say um, these movies, uh, like a broadly applied content warning to, to every single thing that Lars Von Trier has ever been involved with because they're, they're not just light Sunday afternoon viewing, that's for sure. I think that I would be... I've seen Antichrist more times than I care to admit, so I don't feel the need to go back to that one. But one of these days, even though it just completely destroyed me, I would like to go back and watch Breaking the Waves again. Um, yeah. Simply because, I mean, as as much as Von Trier puts his... Stars, usually actresses, through the emotional ringer, he gets something really remarkable out of them. And Emily Watson in Breaking the Waves is a truly extraordinary performance. That said, you know, not something that I'm necessarily hungering to revisit, but one of these days.
1: So now it's time for Kyle's Corner. Kyle McKinnon is a features programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. He's going to take a few minutes to talk about whatever the heck he wants to.
3: This weekend I watched Roadhouse for I don't know how many times I've seen it. And anyone close to me knows it's like a really obvious thing. It's like, of course, Kyle watched Roadhouse because I think I talk about it a lot what I didn't realize until today, being Monday, is that it was—it just happened to be the thirtieth anniversary to the date of the day that the movie was released. And I texted my wife who watched it, and it was just like, "Holy moly, how crazy is that?" Because I really haven't pulled it off the shelf in like a year and a half or two years. So, um, that said, I'm gonna—I'm uh, gonna talk about it just a little bit. Roadhouse—if I mean you're, you've probably—you've probably heard of it because it seems to play on TV all the time, or at least that's how I knew it growing up, is, like, the movie that's always on cable. If you're eating out somewhere, it's on the TV. And I've largely known that movie just through broken segments. And it was also one that I would often quote with a friend of mine. You know, it's like, if it was on, it's just like, oh, man, this movie has some of the best lines. Some of them include, like, the doctor talking to Patrick Swayze, his character Dalton. Uh, Do you enjoy pain? He says, pain don't hurt. And, uh... She also asks him, like, do you ever win a fight? He says, nobody ever wins a fight. And uh, one of my favorite lines uh, where Sam Elliott's talking to him very sternly at a late-night diner and says, when a man sticks a gun in your face, you've got two choices. You can die or you can kill the motherfucker. So, you know, I just kind of, like, I thought the movie was kind of jokey and all, but I actually had kind of, like, a transformative moment where... Around like 2004, I discovered that Tom Sharpling, the host of uh, the best show on WFMU um, out of New Jersey, he uh, he did this one kind of stunt on his three-hour weekly show where he told the listeners, you know, hey, we're going to do Roadhouse, so go get the DVD. I'll give you an hour and uh, come back. And when I say hit play, we'll kind of all be in sync. And he did all the dialogue and... And played uh, soundtrack music to Roadhouse uh, just based on a script. It was PG rated because it's a, a family-friendly show, so he cut out all the cursing and he replaced all the like the blues music with music like Blondie and the Misfits. And uh, and he also would just mouth the sound effects, like if someone walks opens a door, he goes like "yeah," um, that's supposed to be a door creaking. Um, anyway, I enjoyed that on such a high level. And I started actually kind of watching that movie a whole lot more. And I remember it was during a sidewalk scramble that I was participating in. While our editor was editing the film, I decided I would stay up all night and and kind of, you know, just while he works, I would just at least be around for for support. It was during that like 3am, 4am, where I was literally drinking coffee out of one of those large uh, cardboard uh, carrier things that you get for parties or catering. I was just drinking directly out of that and realized that um, this movie wasn't just like kind of trash, like it it actually brought me a tremendous amount of joy. And I think since then, I would be lying if it, if I said it wasn't one of my favorite movies of all time. I really want to say something like, um, you know, like Paris, Texas, I was talking about last week, and which is an amazing movie, but somewhere I hold Roadhouse above most all other things. Around that same time that I was getting really into the movie, uh, I went on a trip to Chicago and decided that uh, we were gonna have a movie night and uh, we went to Facets Video, which is um, a very famous video store. It's known for its insanely great selection. And I would say they lean more towards like art house, indie and foreign. But I thought, you know, these are the kind of people that, you know, if I ask for a suggestion, they would be able to give me something. And so I asked this guy at the counter. It's like, hey, do you have anything along the lines of kind of like good, fun, like cult, trashy, like roadhouse? And he just looked at me blankly because he didn't know what I was talking about. And it's like, you know, the movie Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze and Sam Elliott. And he's like, let me see if I have that. And it's like, that's not my question. But he's like, let's see. We have... It's from the 1940s, Roadhouse, and it's like, no, that's not it. And I used as my reference point, like, wait, you know, something like Nightmare on Elm Street 2. That it's like, that was really off base. Uh, he does not know what I'm talking about. So I, I did not get any kind of help from him at all. Um, so I was really disappointed by that. I'll, I'll give a few observations from watching it for, like, the 20th time. One is during a scene where the bad guys under Ben Gazzera are destroying a delivery of liquor. The the most weirdest product placement uh, is is right before us, where they're wheeling out of a truck a whole stack of cases of Drambui, which is a really weird kind of—you would expect something like— jack daniels or some sort of scotch but instead it's this like this drink that you would only find at the kind of place that would this like super honey like syrupy drink you'd only find at like um uh like a restaurant that has linen tablecloths or like a a bar that only serves people that are retired red west uh, he plays the character Red who runs the uh, the hardware store. He was actually featured in a documentary we showed. I think it was The Duke and the King. It was a documentary about Duke Bardwell who was a bass player uh, in later era Elvis's touring band. And one thing I learned about Red West from that documentary was that he was really into karate but also that he was a real, real bastard to Duke and would really bully him a lot. So he's he, he plays a very lovable Character in this movie, but I always feel kind of bad. It's like, oh man, this guy might be a real dickhead in real life. The other thing about this is that, um, so Sam Elliott's in it, and he, it's one of, my favorite roles he's ever played, he plays Wade Garrett, who is kind of the mentor to Patrick Swayze's Dalton. They're, the, they're considered the ultimate coolers, bouncers in, in, uh, in the whole roadhouse slash bar world. And so that means they're masters of martial arts, but they also have like a deep kind of uh, ph- philosophy in life. Anyways, Sam, I was thinking about it, Sam Elliott plays i haven't seen the movie a star is born the new one but he plays bradley cooper's brother i think is that right Corey? thumbs up so i i don't know how they explain it in that movie but in this movie that was made 30 years ago sam elliott looks way too old to be playing bradley cooper's brother uh and so how do they make it work (laughs) the movie made in 2019 is it like half brothers something like that Okay, you gave me the nod. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. That said, I highly recommend giving this movie a rewatch. It's currently available at the Vestavia Hills Library on Blu-ray. It's also at Homewood on DVD. And or you can email me at Kyle at Sidewalk Fest if you'd like to, uh, to borrow my Blu-ray copy from the, the Shout Factory version. I'm Kyle McKinnon, and this is Movie Report.
0: Kyle McKinnon is a feature film programmer for the Sidewalk Film Center and Cinema and now fast film terms
1: fast film terms Corey.
0: all right let's hear them green screen oh okay yeah those are fun those are fun so this is a great big green sheet as far as i understand it that is hung on a wall and people sometimes perform in front of them but why
1: well, because the color green that they use, and by the way, it could also be a blue screen. Uh-huh. The specific color of green or blue that they use is something that's not of the natural world. So if you've ever seen these or seen those behind the scenes kind of things, basically the idea is that in a, you know, to be, again, really reductive as we do with fast film terms, when you pull your footage you've shot in front of the green or blue screen that's of a unnatural color into a computer, there's software programs that can take whatever you'd like to replace that color blue with and replace it with that, you know, spider robot or what have you. And because that color is unnatural, it's not going to be in your actor's skin or their clothes. And so, you know, it's like, oh, remove all green things and replace it with Spider-Robot. And that happens.
0: So it's a color used for digital compositing.
1: Yes. Yes. Chroma key. Uh, The next fast film term is montage. All right. Which is really just another word for editing. But, of course, we've come to know it from films like The Karate Kid or Rocky or... My favorite Valley Girl, where we watch <laughs> two people fall in love over the course of all of, you know, 85 seconds.
0: I always picture Rocky jogging up a flight of stairs and punching a side of beef. Yeah. Um, edited together to show that time is passing without spending a lot of real estate narratively speaking on each of those scenes. Sure.
1: Um, you know, when Daniel Sun is, you know, chopping people in the face. I mean, nobody wants to watch two days of that karate competition against Cobra Kai, right? Uh, not so fast. Oh, I know. Anyway, there are some also modern montage approaches that are really fun, and I highly recommend the one in Francis Ha. Oh, that's a good one. So I am here in the studio right now with Aaron Penhoss.
4: Hi, Aaron. Hi.
1: And Aaron, you work for Sidewalk, the I Sidewalk do. Film Festival and Cinema. What's your title right now?
4: My title feels like it's sort of ever-changing. Right now, I guess my my big title is Cinema Director uh, for the upcoming cinema, but I'm also calling myself the uh, Festival Co-Producer Emeritus, because i am still got my hand in that a little bit.
1: I gotcha. So um, let me just ask you a couple of questions real quick. So what the hell is film traffic anyway? Like, what does it mean to do film traffic for a festival?
4: At least in our organization, film traffic is in charge of cataloging uh, film submissions, keeping things organized for the screeners to review them on, a, on the website where we take submissions. And then once the programmers have selected the films, the film traffic is in charge of notifying accepted filmmakers and uh, filmmakers who are not accepted, subsequently getting yet another copy of the film, the exhibition copy, that's the actual thing that we're going to show at the festival.
1: So really, it's like this sort of space between choices being made of what's going to play at a festival and the film's actually playing. And so if you mess up, then the films may not play. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of just a very low stress situation, right? (laughs) Yeah.
4: Well, I mean, one thing that I did like about it, because this used to be my role, was that when I'm talking to people at the festival, particularly filmmakers, I guess, I can say that I have nothing to do uh, with which films get selected because I am kind of tended to be their main point of contact with the festival. Uh, but I like to say that I, I have no part in the programming because if your friend's film didn't get in, that's not my fault.
1: So in other words, you like to blame everything on me. Correct. Yes, okay, that's real fair, I like that. <laughs> um, so, But now our, the very lovable Sam does film traffic now, right? So you get to push all that off on him.
4: Yes, indeed. Well, he gets the fun part, too. Once you've gotten all the exhibition copies of the films, there is not generally a whole lot to do during the festival weekend. So you mostly just get to hang out and have a good time. So I'm kind of jealous of Sam in that regard. I don't get to do that anymore. But Sam's doing a great job. You're on, what, third third year? Fourth year? Third year. Keep it up, buddy.
1: <laughs> so, so when was the first time you discovered Sidewalk? Like, what's the history there? Because, by trade, right by by sort of academic trade, let's say it that way, you're actually were planning to be an attorney.
4: Yeah, uh, that didn't work out super great for me. Uh, <laughs> it was it was difficult for me. I'm not going to get into that story. Uh, Please but don't. I got <laughs> I got involved with Sidewalk. I actually just was an attendee at the very first Sidewalk Film Festival. I was a, a senior in high school. And then I went off to college and grad school, and I didn't go to another sidewalk until the 10th anniversary, where a friend of mine who had a film in got me a VIP pass, which I didn't know it was a thing you're not supposed to do, because I did not work on his film at all. And I enjoyed it so much that I felt like I needed to find another way to get that VIP pass the next year, and I decided the best way to do that would be to get involved in the festival, and I came on as a screener.
1: Which is a volunteer position. Which
4: is a volunteer position. And I think I did a decent job of that at least one year, maybe two. The last year I was a screener, I didn't do such a great job. <laughs> I didn't watch anything.
1: And so, as we often do, you didn't really watch anything. You did kind of a bad job as a volunteer last year, and then we promoted you into a higher position
4: that yes. was actually paid. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, so for that year, Welcome I was... Welcome to
1: film festivals. Yeah,
4: I was, a pr- I was a production assistant that year, so I actually worked pretty hard during the festival that year. And then then uh, I got promoted to film traffic.
1: So what's your favorite sidewalk film, then, that you've seen? Ooh man. I know, that's really putting you on the spot right now, isn't it?
4: It really is.
1: Uh, uh, you could go with least favorite.
4: <laughs> um, I really enjoyed this film, not because... I mean, it was a good, it was an enjoyable film, but what really gets me excited about films at the festival is seeing how into it the filmmakers are. And so for me, the, the most excitement I've seen from a filmmaker was when we had as our opening night film All-American High School Revisited, because I gave the filmmaker kind of a, a tour inside the theater before the screening when it's totally empty. And here's a middle-aged man running around the theater, just so excited, almost jumping up and down, because he can't believe that his film is going to be showing in a house this big.
1: Yeah, that was a really, really fun year. Um, I, re- I liked that a lot, too. That's actually a great film. That's actually a film that I think is a bit of a sidewalk sleeper uh, and that it didn't it didn't get huge sort of a swath of distribution like I thought it would. um, But it's such a great film. And man, the audience just really, really dug it. And the filmmaker was indeed sort of blown away. He was like, I had no idea this what the Alabama theater was going to look like (laughs) and be like. So that was that was actually a really, really fun year. I agree. What is the thing you're most excited about in regards to the cinema opening? Or are you just purely terrified?
4: Um, I'm mostly terrified right now. After the last few meetings that we've had and, uh, with the staff, it's really just hitting me how much there is to do between now and opening. But uh, I'm very excited to kind of have my own bar to play with. Uh, <laughs> and, and also using that playtime to hopefully do some fun movie-themed stuff for our films, which will be chaining so often that I won't be able to do that all the time because of your uh, ridiculous amount of programming.
1: Yep, that's right. <laughs> and when you say sort of fun stuff to play with, you mean like we're going to do a ton of, uh, of programming-related sort of drink specials and all kinds of things that make the fil- film going really experiential. So yeah, you're actually looking forward to that instead of just dreading all the stuff we're about to throw at you. Yeah.
4: I've tried to not think about that too much. I, Chloe and I had a conversation the other day about how we kind of waver between being absolutely terrified and then not being scared enough so I'm definitely in the absolutely terrified state right now
1: well movies are fun so hang in there (laughs) well thank you so much for being here anything you want to add Aaron? no (laughs) (laughs) so Aaron is our very lovable but grumpy former film traffic manager and now let's just call it cinema manager thanks for being here thanks for having me Thank you so much for listening to side talks
0: particular thanks to our friends here at boutwell studios for making us not sound totally embarrassing at least all of the time and thanks of course to splash 96 for our awesome theme music we really love it
1: we're your own cinematic brandy and monica <laughs> and indeed the boy is cory's thanks so much we appreciate it and also We have a lot of events coming up, so visit SidewalkFest.com to find out about those. And if you would, do us a favor. Please, please, please give us a nice, you know, five-star or above rating on iTunes. It makes a huge difference to us. We appreciate you listening and, of course, for that five-star rating in advance. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.